0: Hi, this is Annalisa from Seattle, Washington. It's currently Friday night, and instead of going out with my friends, I was staying up writing an essay that I turned in five minutes before the deadline. Terry, if you're listening to this, please give me a passing grade. This podcast was recorded at... It is 109 p.m. on October 8th. It's a Friday, and it's 2021. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show.
1: I appreciate the request for a passing grade and not an A.
0: <laughs> Look, if you if you got it in right before the buzzer, you're going to take what they give you. <laughs> Good luck. You I hope it worked out. don't fail. Yes. Hey there, it's the Imperial Politics Podcast. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House.
1: I'm Kelsey Snell. I cover Congress.
0: And Scott Horsley is with us once again. Hi, Scott.
1: Good to be
2: with you.
0: Scott Horsley is a chief economics correspondent at NPR. This week, there was a little bit of good news because the federal government reached a deal so that it will be able to keep paying on its debts. The federal government is not going to default for now. So, Kelsey, what exactly happened in the Senate?
1: So the Senate reached an agreement uh, and actually voted on this agreement and passed a bill to increase the federal debt ceiling through early December. They set a, a dollar cap on it, $480 billion, and that's supposed to get them through into early December. This is... band-aid this is like maybe not even a band-aid this is like when you just hope you stop bleeding um this is they are doing their very best to kind of patch things together and avoid default without actually addressing the underlying problem which is they are having a fight about process and about who gets to decide who is you know dictating the rules of passing bills in the senate Republicans, uh, led by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, say Democrats need to use the budget process if they want to get around the filibuster and pass a debt limit suspension without the help of any Republicans. Democrats say, no, you can't tell us how to do things, number one. Number two, it's bad precedent to use the budget reconciliation to address the debt limit because it is supposed to only be used once every fiscal year. And it sets up a situation where you tie the debt limit to the budget process. The other thing that they say is that Republicans helped create The debt that is being paid for right now and should have to be the ones voting along with Democrats to make sure that those payments go out the door, that they can't just agree to spend money or in this case cut taxes and reduce revenues for the federal government and then not actually do the other side of that, which is make sure that the federal government can pay the bills for borrowing to support those policies
0: when we're talking about this deal that they reach, it's only through December. So the country could end up right back in this spot, you know, right around, right before Christmas time, right? What would happen if the government did default?
2: Well, we don't know exactly what would happen because it's never happened before, although Congress has flirted with this this disaster in the past. What, what we do know is that, the government doesn't bring in enough money in tax revenues to cover all the commitments it's made, and so it has to borrow the balance. If it suddenly and, – and, and that's fine because there are plenty of people willing to lend money to the government at very low interest rates, and the government sets its own credit limits. So they can, they can easily borrow more money to pay off their bills if they need to. Uh, but in this case, if Congress were just to say uh, – or if Republicans in Congress were to say, nope, you can't borrow another penny – then suddenly the government would have to live on whatever uh, money is coming in the door in tax revenues, and that means it wouldn't be able to pay all the people it owes money to. Among those who might not get paid include Social Security recipients, Medicare, health care providers, veterans, active duty service members. So there would be folks who are expecting to get paid by the government who would not be paid, at least not on time. So that's a, a sort of a first level problem for the economy. Secondly, you would have shockwaves through the financial system because the the financial system has always regarded government debts as absolutely rock solid, the safest investment you can make. People are willing to lend money to the government for very low interest rates because they're guaranteed they're going to get that money back as long as there is a federal government of the United States of America. If they come to think, oh, maybe the federal government of the United States of America is a deadbeat not because it can't pay, but because it's not willing to pay, well, suddenly those interest rates are going to go higher. That means it's going to cost the government more to borrow money, but because all the other interest rates are also pegged to the cost of government borrowing, that means if you've got a mortgage, if you've got an auto loan, if you've got credit card debt, your cost of borrowing will go up as well. And the long-term value that the United States has has derived from being the, the sort of gold standard, being the world's safest investment all of that would be cast in doubt. And and even though I think everybody believes that even if we go over this cliff that Congress would pretty quickly uh, you know, backtrack and and raise the debt ceiling, that loss of trust could really do lasting damage. So this is not a game you really want to play.
0: Another part of our economy that seems it seems really complicated is how it's going to get back on track because we had the jobs numbers that came out, and uh, August wasn't that great, and it was about 366,000 jobs um, created. That's not that great. And then this morning, there were some more numbers, and I, I, I've i heard that they were not that great.
2: No, uh, August was a, a big slowdown in hiring compared to June and July, and September was slower still. Uh, and that's disappointing. Uh, U.S. employers added just 194,000 jobs last month, way less than forecasters had been expecting, and even even less when you think of what was expected a few months ago. You know, Back at the beginning of the summer, September was really expected to be a banner month for hiring for a number of reasons. Uh, schools were going to reopen, and that was going to free up a lot of parents to go back to work. Uh, those supplemental unemployment benefits that some employers had blamed for keeping would-be workers on the sidelines, those ran out in early September. So it was expected that some of those folks would would uh, would start hustling to go back to work, and of course the the expectation was vaccination rates would have put uh, the pandemic in the rearview mirror by this time. Unfortunately, uh, Delta happened, and so the the job gains in September were were much softer than expected. Now, there are some caveats here. Uh, There's probably some statistical noise here. The Labor Department makes some seasonal adjustments. So the number might not really be quite as bad as as that headline shows and there were some encouraging signs in things like bars and restaurants which added jobs in September after cutting jobs in August that suggests people are you know starting to tiptoe back out into the into the world and and spend money and eat out and travel again as the as the worst of the delta uh, wave recedes but certainly this was this was a disappointing uh, jobs report, not what the White House wanted to see, not what millions of unemployed workers wanted to see, and, and frankly, not what a lot of businesses wanted to see either, because there are a lot of businesses out there that say they're clamoring for workers. So we have this sort of weird situation where there's a lot of unfilled jobs, a lot of People who are not working, and it's just going to take a long time, apparently, to to work out those kinks.
1: So, Scott, one of the things that I have been seeing in the reaction, uh, particularly from Democrats, is they say, you know, this number is proof that people who are not showing up on the unemployment rolls, since we saw, you know, unemployment claims have dropped, that doesn't th- this job proves that those people are not necessarily Getting jobs, they're just not getting any benefits at all. And they're using that, you know, from a political argument to say that this is why they need to pass the Build Back Better plan and have more supports for people uh, through the federal government. But the but the claim that they're making at the heart of it is that these numbers prove that people aren't going back to work. Are they are they right in all of this?
2: Well, they're certainly right in that part of it. I mean, I think there can be an argument about how well tailored the Build Back Better plan is to address this issue. But it is certainly true that the safety net that was in place for much of the pandemic, which was expanded unemployment benefits and enhanced unemployment benefits those ran out nationwide in the first week of September. About half the states had cut them off before that. Uh, but they're, they're gone coast to coast now. And since the beginning of September, we've had about 7 million people drop off the unemployment rules. Obviously, uh, not very many of those people went back to work if we only added 194,000 jobs in the whole month of September. So uh, there are a lot of people who are no longer collecting unemployment, who have not yet started collecting a paycheck, and that's going to be you know a hardship for them.
0: And, and Kelsey, when when you talk about like the congressional reaction and and the 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 Biden administration pushing their agenda, um, this legislative agenda they're trying to get through, how does this the the slowing of the economy affect that? Because even though the White House will argue that. Their legislative plans for infrastructure and childcare, et cetera, will help the economy. It doesn't necessarily help, like with you know unemployment or people. Who, it it's not an immediate fix, right? So, right. like, how does this affect the negotiations?
1: You know, I I'm not sure that it will make a huge difference long term in the negotiations. If anything, you know, Democrats want to use this as evidence to kind of pressure some of their own members into seeing the argument for federal assistance of other kinds basically saying that you know people are going to need rental support and that people still need you know support for childcare and still need support for education and there there is a political argument to be made that democrats are trying to make to their own members that you know what the bill that they have in front of them would help alleviate other problems that are associated with the current economy.
0: All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Scott, thank you for stopping by. You know, you are just the bearer of the news, even if it's not that great, but you are great. I hope (laughs) next
2: time I'm here, the news will be a little brighter.
0: Yes. Kelsey, you can go take a little break, take a little breather, and we're we're, going to bring you back for Can't Let It Go.
1: I am ready. I'm excited. I'll see you back in just a little bit.
0: Okay, so time for a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, what's happening in the state of Iowa. You probably have some ideas what that means. We'll be back. And we're back. Domenico Montanaro is here. Hey, Aisha. And so is Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio. Hey, Aisha. So the former president, Donald Trump, is holding a rally in Iowa. And that's why we have you here, Clay. Um, The rally is going to be at the state fairgrounds. Domenico, I I know people listening may go, well, why are we talking about, you know, Trump? But the the fact is there are a lot of people in this country that follow Trump, follow what he's doing and they are listening to what he has to say and by being in Iowa we know what that is a signal of or a signal of the potential of, right?
3: Totally. And, you know, he is the front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination if he decides to run Um, and going to a state like Iowa certainly signals that he at least wants to tease it. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of people might say, well, don't. Uh, report on something, if it's not actually happening, um, well, again, th- this is politics. He's the frontrunner for that nomination if he wants it. And he continues to dictate the message on Capitol Hill with his, you know, endorsements around the country as well.
0: And that's the thing. He, he is not the president anymore, but he is still, in, in many ways, the head of the Republican Party. And, and Clay, I, I wanted to talk to you about who is going to be at this rally, because it is a who's who of the Republicans in Iowa, right?
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Governor Kim Reynolds, uh, she has not officially announced she's running for re-election next year, but she's going to be there. Uh, Two members of the House of Representatives, Ashley Henson and Marionette Miller-Meeks, are both going to be speaking ahead of the former president. And also, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, who's 88 years old and just (laughs) recently announced that he is going to be running for another term. So, All of these people are lined up to uh, speak on stage ahead of the former president. And this comes at a time, too, when, you know, the kind of gold standard poll in Iowa, the Iowa poll out this month, says that uh, the former president is actually more popular in the state now after leaving office uh, than any other poll that they've uh, done on him.
3: Yeah, well, you know, two things about this. First of all, you know, I think Grassley running at 88 certainly laying the groundwork for Biden to run makes him look like a spring chicken in comparison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and they both, they both, I love that they both like to show how active they still are, you yeah, know, d- Biden with the biking, uh, Grassley <laughs> with the push-ups and the r- actual running. Um, The other thing to consider, though, about Trump in Iowa, you know, he won the state. It's really moved um, more Republican. It had been a swing state. Obama had won it twice, but Trump won it by a significant margin, you know, by nine points um, in 2020. So, you know, this is a place where he uh, has a lot of potential support.
0: One thing about, you know, obviously everyone looks to Iowa and, and you know, Lord help us, we're talking about 2024. But the, the thing about Trump being there and Trump playing around with this idea of running is that it basically freezes the Republican field, right? Like it makes everything very um, difficult for anyone else to try to get breathing room like uh i i would think that would be the case clay like that it's it's hard for people to get breathing room if you have the former president running around
4: people are still going to be coming here and they are i mean y'all left iowa a long time ago and the 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 potential presidential candidates uh didn't wait too long before they started coming here again. I mean, we've already seen uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, former Vice President Mike Pence, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. I mean, they come to these fundraisers, they speak. That's nothing new. People are still going to be testing the waters. uh, But, you know, it does really freeze how much infrastructure do they lay in the state if the former president is just going to throw his hat in the ring down the
3: road. Well, speaking of waters, you know, Trump, uh, to continue this metaphor, is kind of like the thumb and the dam. You know of presidential mm. candidates. Yeah. You know because you can you can see the waters piling up on the other side of that dam. You know all these people who are going out there and want to jump in, but they know that they can't do it if Trump is in the way because he is that colossal figure within the Republican Party. And you had somebody like Haley, uh, you know, recently say that she's going to talk to Trump about what her plans are and what he doesn't. They're going to make a decision together. It's really striking to me. that even after all this time that these folks don't realize that Trump is out for Trump. He's not loyal to any of the other Republicans uh, and he's going to run if he thinks he can win, most likely. If he doesn't, then he probably won't run. You know, That's the sense I get from a lot of people I speak to in Trump world and uh, other Republicans um, that he, that's his calculus. He's looking at that and last month when we saw the messy exit from Afghanistan and Biden's numbers start to take a hit, it was suddenly seen, and you heard more chatter about Trump saying he's definitely going to run, right? Even though that's been walked back now uh, because they thought that by Biden was going to be permanently damaged from uh, the exit in Afghanistan. But instead, his numbers have started to bounce back as that has receded from the headlines. So I still think it's probably 50-50 for what Trump is going to do. And he's going to look to tease it because he knows it's good ratings.
0: And it seems like regardless of how any of these other Republican hopefuls may feel about Trump or feel about his loyalty, there is a loyalty of the Republican base to Trump that they cannot ignore or get away from, right Like they have to um, their base is, believes in Trump. they believe in the things he says about the elections and they believe about the the last election, you know not being legitimate even though that's not true. So that forces Republicans to have to dance with Trump like that if they want to keep their base happy. Right. Like this is this is something that they have to um, contend with. Right.
4: Yeah. And and you're seeing that come up at different town halls. I mean, I was at the uh, Chuck Grassley's uh, last stop of his 99-county tour that he does every year. And, and there were two questions that, that came up about just asking him, you know, what are we going to do about this last election? And, and, you know, I don't feel like in my heart that this was a fair election. And, and Grassley has to kind of walk this walk, as you're saying, where he can't just shoot down what they're saying because so much of the base has bought into these false claims.
3: You know, the thing is, with this dance that Trump is doing, you know, he's pushing out this message that the election was stolen from him because it gives him this easy exit ramp to not say that he lost the election, even though it wasn't stolen, even though this is a lie that he continues to tell. But what he winds up doing is sticking that to every other Republican who winds up running for office. So, you know, there's a lot of time between now and when somebody would have to announce for 2024. But remember, there's an election between now and then, and that's next year in 2022. And this is really becoming a litmus test for a lot of the other Republican candidates and whether they believe the election was stolen. And the more that they get asked about that, the more polarizing of an answer that becomes, because that just doesn't play well in the suburbs where there's a lot of swing districts.
4: And that speaks to the point that Aisha was asking at the outset of this conversation. I mean, we're seeing a lot of the the Republican Party leaders in the state, uh, politicians in the state, they're going to be sharing that stage uh, with the former president here in Des Moines.
0: All right. Well, let's leave it there. Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio, thank you for stopping by. And I guess we'll be seeing more of you as we get closer to 2024. (laughs) Um, We'll see, right?
4: Time will tell. We'll see how the Iowa caucuses hold up, right?
0: <laughs> yes. Well, and it's and it's not, I'm not, if I sound sad, it's not about you. It's about <laughs> yeah. how quickly this campaign season is coming along. Yeah, but- try being
3: here. Try being here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if it winds up being the Iowa primaries.
0: Hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, it's time for Can't Let It Go. And we're back, and Kelsey Snell has come back to join us for "Can't Let It Go." I can't let go of the fun, so I am back. <laughs> she you is can't back. get rid of me <laughs> <laughs> And Domenico Montanaro is still here, and so we are going to end the show like we do every week with "Can't Let It Go," the part of the show where we talk about the things from the week that we just can't stop talking about. Politics or otherwise, the things that we just can't let go of. Okay, and this week we're going to start with Domenico. What can't you mm-hmm. let go of?
3: Well, I'm going to start with the Treasury Department's new question as they stand on a street corner in Washington <laughs> D.C.
0: Uh huh.
3: Can you spare some change? So, okay. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, the Treasury Department there's the potential idea of minting a trillion dollar coin as a way as an end run around the debt ceiling which makes zero sense to me <laughs> i don't understand it i don't uh, understand it either they would basically just take an already you know created design uh they would make it a platinum eagle and they would just slap a trillion dollars on it uh and you know basically have enough money to raise the debt ceiling.
1: But a trillion dollars doesn't get you too far in the amount of money that is being spent. Actually, Scott Horsley and I had a conversation about this just the other day. You did, because maybe
3: you can explain it to me, and maybe you can oh, also I don't understand explain understand to it. me. Did you ask Scott what happens if you drop the coin It falls in like a subway grate or something?
1: I should clarify, we had a conversation, but I did not walk away having any greater understanding of how this would work. The, the one thing he did tell me, though, is that a trillion-dollar coin wouldn't cut it. It has to be closer to, like, five trillion dollars. Mm. So maybe you need five one-trillion-dollar coins of or them. one.
0: <laughs> what, Domenico, what would you buy with a trillion-dollar coin?
3: <laughs> oh, let me tell you something. First, the biggest problem I would have with a trillion-dollar coin is how to break it. <laughs>
0: Well, I I want to be like um what Scrooge McDuck with the um bath oh, the, yeah. the, the the yeah trillion dollar <laughs> coins in the vault. Oh, like, that would be like mm-hmm. oh well, my goodness.
3: Then right? we could mm-hmm. then we could just ask you to throw us twenty of them and we could pay off our debt.
0: Exactly. Problem solved. Problem solved. (laughs) Start making the
3: coins. We're solving
1: problems over here (laughs) at the NPR Politics
3: It's over. Done.
0: So we got it. We got it together. Okay. So solve (laughs) that. Now, Kelsey, what can't you let go of?
1: Well, it is the spooky season here. And so um, I have decided that I cannot let go of the idea that some random people decided that they found the Zodiac Killer but presented some really kind of... I don't know, not that amazing evidence. It's like, I, I was in a meeting and I come out of the meeting, I look on Twitter and the Zodiac Killer is trending. I'm like, why is, the, what the? And, and you so thought it was about died. Ted
0: Cruz. And you're like, <laughs> Ted Cruz oh thought goodness.
3: it was about
1: Ted Cruz, apparently. He tweeted about it.
3: One more troll of Ted Cruz.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's this group of 40 former law Did enforcement investigators. Did they find him in, in Canada? They they think it's this guy who died, but they name the man and they like present all of these photos of him. And they're like, "Look, this guy has forehead wrinkles, just like the drawing has forehead wrinkles." I'm like, "I have forehead wrinkles. (laughs) Like, did I? Was it me? Uh, Are you are you confessing
0: to something here, Kathy? I'm a little concerned.
1: (laughs) But I just love the idea that there was like all this breaking news for an entire day, actually for like most of a week, about the idea that they had like figured out who the. Zodiac Killer is. And then if you dig deeper, it's just like some 40 dudes who are hanging out being like, well, I did some Googles and I'm pretty sure that this is our man.
0: I thought it was like <laughs> also, DNA I- evidence. It wasn't like DNA evidence that connected him or anything. It they was just say the- that
1: they have new physical and forensic evidence. But like when they when people have reached out the San- to the San Francisco Police Department, who actually has like an open case file on this, they're like, we don't have new information here (laughs) (laughs) all right Aisha, what about you (laughs) what is is on your mind
0: (laughs) this is the thing that everyone has been talking about and it is who is the bad art friend aka the kidney story yep yep Okay. What
3: I don't know this thing. Who is okay. the bad
0: art friend? This is in the New York Times magazine. Okay, so if you don't want spoilers, don't listen to this. Turn your radio Turn, off. Turn. Um, you, you've reached s- the end of the podcast. Yes, yes, but still, but still, give us a, a good rating. Um, I, I love spoilers because do. I don't have to
3: do any of the work.
0: So <laughs> basically, there's this writer circle. This is my synopsis. There's this writer circle, right? And there's this lady, Don Dorland. She gives her kidney but she doesn't know who it goes to. She's just like, I'm a giving person. Right. She's I- like an
1: advertising. She's like, look at how great I am.
0: And she's put it on Facebook and stuff. And there's this other woman who she think is her friend. And, <laughs> and emphasis on think. Sonia did not make no comments on the Facebook post about the <laughs> kidney, about her giving away mm. a kidney. And so she ended up reaching out to Sonya like, um, I, I I think you know that I gave a kidney away, right? And I, ain't, I haven't heard from you. And Sonya like, really? <laughs> you know, Sonya, Sonya was pretending like she didn't know nothing about it. But it turned out that Sonya had written a short story that was Uh-oh. remarkably similar to what... Don Dorland the person who gave her kidney had written on Facebook
1: wasn't the upshot that she was like I don't want you stealing my story because I might want to tell my story like I just not you, she didn't want her to profit off of that
0: The context for it seems that Don wants to be a writer and Sonia is a successful writer or is is getting success in her writing and Don is not. And then Sonia, not only does she do that, she turns around, acts like she doesn't even know Don and writes something and she was going to get awards for this short story. Like she was like winning stuff for this short Ah, story. Some jealousy. I'm just going to
1: put it out there that like... Anytime I tell you guys a good story or, like, slack you something <laughs> funny, it's mine, and I'm taking credit for
0: it. You're taking—no! But, see, then—but the—and the pro and I think the problem is, too, that Sonya acted like she didn't know Don. She acted like, we not friends, and I think that's what really hurt, you know, Don. But it's just—it's too much. The
1: important takeaway from today's podcast is nobody's your friend. Nobody
0: is your friend. And even if they give you a kidney, they're not your friend. <laughs> all right that's a wrap for today our executive producer is shirley henry our editors are mathani Matori and eric mcdaniel our producers are barton girdwood and elena moore thanks to Lexie pittle and brandon carter i'm aisha roscoe i cover the white house
3: i'm kelsey snell i cover congress and i'm Domenico montanaro senior political editor and correspondent
0: and thank you for listening to the npr politics podcast